On the 27th of November, 1931, a new film with the tantalising name of Mädchen in Uniform was premiered at the Capital Cinema in Berlin. It came from the studios of Karl Fröhlich, a very well-known name to German cinema-goers, a production of the Deutsches Filmgemeinschaft. The women who made it were in the audience. A glamorous German aristocrat sculptor in the throes of a divorce from her Hungarian baron husband, an Austrian stage actress, formerly of the Reinhardt School, and a bunch of actresses of all ages, mainly young, the older ones already experienced in cinema, the younger ones totally unheard of. No one knew what lay ahead, least of all this group of women who had come together for three exhilarating weeks to make their movie. And when it was over and the lights came up, there was silence. And then a sudden cascade of fervent applause. They loved it. They absolutely loved it. You're listening to The Kiss, the story of the women who made a movie masterpiece. And this is episode 10, 20 More Meters of Kissing. If you search for Mädchen in Uniform in the British newspaper archives, you come across an extraordinary thing. Love. A genuine love for this production. Critics and reviewers, men and women seem not only charmed by it, but genuinely impressed. They consider it very different from the usual fare. More important, original, sensitive, something special. They take ownership of it, find something personally appealing in it. And that's how it was right from the word go. This movie, so quick to make, financed cooperatively, almost instantly blew up into a big deal. From that first night at the Capitol Cinema when the audience exploded with heartfelt applause, the film was an unremitting success. For the cast, particularly the two leads, it was the old cliché about overnight stardom. Their lives were turned around. Only a day or so after the premiere, Hertha Thiele, who played the schoolgirl Manuela, found herself confronted by an elated newspaper vendor. He had a copy of the Hamburger Illustrator in his hands, with her face on the front cover, and he thrust it under her nose. She ran away from him, still deeply uncomfortable and disorientated by everything that was happening. She and Dorothea Wieck, who played opposite her, were receiving fan mail by the bucket load, and from here on, week after week, their manager presented them standard written replies, which they signed before they were posted out to their growing number of followers. Why? They weren't Marlena Dietrich an actress who thrived on publicity and adoration, who donned trousers to shock society and to cast a question mark over her sexuality. They hadn't even been in a film that was wildly risque. It was such a personal and biographical account, such a limited story, so awkward, really. Surely it didn't appeal broadly, did it? It did, both at home and in other countries, and it appealed across the sexes, age groups and even social groups, the Prince of Wales making no secret of the fact that he went to see it several times. But let's start at home. What kind of Germany did Märchen land in, and why did this anti-authoritarian story hit home so effectively? We keep telling ourselves that this was the Weimar period, and that artistically the country was flourishing, 
but in fact historians consider the golden age of Weimar to have ended by 1929. The entire period had been unstable, with various leaders and parties coming and going, and the economy nosediving. 1932 was a year of two elections, not unusual given that there had been elections in 1928 and 1930 as well. The second of these was the last democratic election that Germany would have for the foreseeable future. The largest contender was the National Socialist German Workers' Party, but it didn't win outright power and couldn't form a coalition. So its leader, Adolf Hitler, and his followers set about seizing power through backroom intrigues and a string of promises about maintaining democracy that they never intended to keep. On January the 30th, 1933, Hitler became the Chancellor of Germany. Within two months, political opponents were being rounded up, a Third Reich was proclaimed, and civil liberties went out of the window. Suddenly, Mädchen in Uniform becomes a rather different film. Rather than looking backwards at Prussianism and the legacy of Frederick the Great, it looks forward to a different kind of militarism and suppression. It's very possible that foreign audiences watching the movie well into the 1930s were finding in it a kind of it-couldn't-happen-here relief and maybe felt they were getting an insight into the bullying and self-importance of an uncompromising new regime. The Nazis were OK with Machen at the beginning. In fact, it was reported at the time that Hitler was particularly taken with Dorothea Wieck, who played the beloved teacher Fräulein von Bernburg. And Goebbels was very impressed with what he considered the magnificent directing and, I quote, exciting film art. I've found conflicting information on what became of Mädchen under Nazi censorship, particularly later on towards and during the war. The usual thinking is that it was banned outright as undesirable. In fact, it did sometimes slip through and get shown. As late as 1940, Goebbels would allow screenings of otherwise forbidden films to be shown at the Kamera unter den Linden, including Mädchen. While we might think that German cinema-goers were fed a diet of pure Nazi propaganda in the late 30s and early 40s, in fact, they didn't want to see these films and were much more drawn to the escapist and the spectacular. But anyway, for the time being, filmmakers were still free to tell their stories in the way they wanted and critics free to respond similarly. Mädchen was an unquestioned and instant critical success and took first place in the list of the most important films of the year at the 1931 Annual Conference of German Critics. So what about the rest of the world? I'm going to turn to the, our UK reviews because, as I've stated, I think there was a particular fondness among the British for this story. Whether it's because it stuck two fingers up to authority, a much-loved British theme, or because it was full of girls, another recurring interest of ours, it touched a nerve with our audiences. The national newspapers were beside themselves over the film, the Daily Express, for one, describing it as having a power and beauty. It is life captured and transformed into shadows. The highbrow periodical Everyman called it an important German production recommended to serious-minded filmgoers, while the Hull Daily Mail just wrote sensational, sensational, sensational. If you don't mind, I'll read part of a review from the Yorkshire Post of March 1932. The writer starts by referring to the film as an exceptionally brilliant picture and goes on to praise its peculiar air of naturalness and integrity. This is what he says about the story. 
The film's central theme is the influence of an attractive and adored young mistress on the girls, and particularly on one sensitive and emotionally unstable girl whose devotion to the mistress eventually creates a scandal. But in the treatment of this theme, there is nothing in the least morbid or unpleasant. The film is full of humour and subdued irony, and its beautifully handled flow of quite ordinary incidents sets the school and its lively pupils most vividly before us. Let's not waste any time and go straight for the jugular. In the treatment of this theme, there is nothing in the least morbid or unpleasant. What's he saying? Let's assume it's a he. He's saying, I think, thank God you can read this story in two ways, as a girl's longing for maternal love and as something more, well, sexual. But thank the Lord it's not too overt or graphic. How they didn't find that kiss graphic, I don't know. Or maybe, just maybe the kiss was found to be beautiful because it was between two beautiful young women and it had been reached naturally and, as I've said before, with the pacing and build-up of a love story. It's an extraordinary testament to the film's honest and original handling of the issue of same-sex love that it was not only accepted and understood by mainstream audiences around the world but taken to heart and thought about and discussed. After all, that line, what you call sin, I call the great spirit of love in all its forms, could not have passed by without some heated discussion. I say it was accepted by everyone. In fact, the censors in America were not keen, and the film was on the point of being banned when Eleanor Roosevelt felt she should step in and give it her full endorsement. At that point, she was just about to assume the position of First Lady, and feeling low at the prospect that she might have to curtail her political activities and melt into the background in time-honoured First Lady fashion. In fact, she found ways of asserting herself and carving out an influential role. Standing up for this controversial foreign film may well have been one of her first acts of defiance and influence. Anyway, we shouldn't over-egg it. Machen received only a very limited run in the United States, despite the First Lady championing it. Critically, the film was unstintingly lauded. It won the audience vote for technical excellence at the Venice Film Festival in 1932 and was named Best Foreign Language Film in a Major Japanese Cinema Award in 1934. Critical success doesn't always sit comfortably with popularity, but it does in this case. Meichen succeeded in winning over not only everyday cinema-goers, but also a new breed of highbrow critic that was emerging as the world of film became more considered as an art form. But let's stick with the popular response for the time being. How do I come to the conclusion that Meijin in Uniform was a cult movie? How do I define it? And what is my evidence for it? Well, in terms of the definition, a cult movie is one that acquires a following, and these followers watch it repeatedly and know its lines and perhaps dress like its main characters or behave like them. In short, the movie becomes bigger than a movie. It takes on a life beyond its cinema showings. It becomes a cultural phenomenon. The scant evidence we have from those involved in making the film suggests that this is exactly what happened. We know from the lead actress Herta Tila, for example, that the film was hugely popular in Romania and that fans were dressing in long stockings like the ones she wore in the Don Carlos school play scene. In fact, if Herta was right, the stockings were being sold and marketed as being like the ones seen in Machen in Uniform. Dressing like these girls seemed to be high on the agenda for fans. 
when a new version of the play was hurriedly brought out in multiple translations on the back of the success of the film, followers around the world could indulge in reenactments of their own. I've seen a startling picture, for example, of young Japanese women in the 1930s dressed exactly in the same clothes worn by the schoolgirls in the film as they presented their own version of the story. We also know, and this is a stunning piece of information once again from Hertha, that distributors in Romania wrote to the film's producer, Karl Froelich, and asked him to send them, I quote, 20 more metres of kissing. This is such a brazen and bizarre request that Hertha goes on to verify it by saying, that's a true story. Froelich told me on the telephone. 20 more metres of kissing is a lot more kissing. I'm indebted to filmmaker Adam Oz for working it out for me. He calculated that as Merchin was filmed on a 35mm reel with 24 frames per second, 20 metres of film would equate to just under a minute, 43 seconds to be precise. So, just under a minute of extra kissing. Herta's anecdote does not specify if this extra minute would have been in one scene or across several. If it were in one scene, say a continuation of the dormitory goodnight kiss, then it would have spilt out to become something very different and gratuitous. Even if a minute of kissing between girls had been spread throughout the film, then it would have been laughably clumsy and suspiciously repetitive. Interesting, though, that distributors, who cared only about giving audiences more of what they wanted, picked up on what they felt was the commerciality of that kiss. Another clue as to how it captured the public's imagination can be found in the scramble by filmmakers immediately afterwards to jump on the all-girl bandwagon. Karl Froelich himself, always the canny businessman, produced a film with a largely female cast two years after Mädchen. It was called Ich für dich, du für mich, or I'm for you, you're for me. By the time this film was made, Germany was solidly Nazi Germany and Froelich was a member of the Nazi party. The film is jolly propaganda, with the story set among the members of the Bund Deutsche Mädel, or the League of German Girls, which became known as the female branch of the Hitler Youth. Girls in uniform again, but this time in a very different setting and with an entirely different message. The year after Mädchen came out saw the launch of another film with a largely, though not exclusively, female cast. Acht Mädels im Boot, or Eight Girls in a Boat, is a musical based on an all-woman rowing team. Among the cast members were two of the Mädchen actresses, Emilia Under, who had played the formidable headmistress, and Hedwig Schlichter, her obsequious second-in-command. The film was made entirely by men and went on to win a gold medal at the Venice Film Festival. A couple of years after this, one of Weimar's most influential filmmakers, Georg Wilhelm Pabst, made his own girl-centred movie, this time in French, and called Jeunes filles en détresse, or Girls in Distress. Set partly in a girls' school, it features the attempted suicide of one of the schoolgirls. Sounds familiar? Pabst must have felt that school-based stories like this needed proven expertise and pulled Krista Winslow on board to help write the screenplay. But we'll return to this particular adventure a little later. Filmmakers were not only keen to exploit the all-girl aspect of Mädchen in uniform, but also the on-screen chemistry between its two leads, Hertha Thieler and Dorothea Wieck. As I mentioned last time, there was not what you'd call a close friendship between the two women on set. They weren't at loggerheads, 
but they weren't best pals either. Hertha found Dorothea cold and too close to the director, Leontine Zagen. Somewhat reluctantly, they agreed to act opposite each other again. The film was called Anna and Elizabeth. I don't need to translate that one. And it came out in 1933. Ever since I saw Mädchen in uniform, I wanted to see Anna and Elizabeth. The fact that I couldn't get hold of it made it all the more tantalising. I knew the barest details of the story. A young woman becomes the centre of attention when she appears to have miraculous healing powers. But I couldn't find so much as a clip of it anywhere. And then, recently, that wonderful treasure trove of a site, Rare Films and More, came up with the goods once again. I ordered a DVD of a very rough print of a movie that I thought was lost. God knows where they find them. Anna and Elizabeth reputedly once again revisited the homoerotic relationship played out by Hertha and Dorothea in Mädchen, and I wanted to know if this film was merely cashing in on what the earlier one had achieved. It wasn't. Anna and Elizabeth is a real curiosity. All it has in common with Mädchen is a lot of close-ups of Hertha and Dorothea and a lot of longing looks. Homoerotic it ain't, or if it is, it's so submerged that it's beyond a modern audience, certainly beyond me. No, it definitely stands alone and is not a companion piece to Mädchen, despite being marketed at the time as the film that brought Tila and Vic back together. The story, in brief, is about a young woman called Anna, Hertha Tila, who prays fervently beside her brother's deathbed, only to find that it seems to have worked and he survives. Word gets round the local community and she acquires a reputation as a miraculous healer. A rich woman called Elizabeth, who is confined to a wheelchair, hears about the girl's powers and insists Anna is brought to her. Somehow or other, Elizabeth regains the use of her legs, and from that point on, she's a passionate advocate of Anna's miraculous powers. Anna is increasingly uncomfortable with the attention, and when she refuses to take her gifts to the wider world, Elizabeth is distraught and inexplicably jumps down a quarry. It's dark and very dramatic. Its style veers all over the place, but it does have some very original moments, technically speaking, particularly in the opening scenes. Dorothea, who was so subtle and mesmerising in Mädchen, is somewhat overexposed and melodramatic in this part. Hertha, whimsical and engaging in Mädchen, is slight and lost. There are scenes where they simply stare into each other's faces, which I suppose is where the lesbian element is supposed to come in. Most of the film was shot on location in Italy and there are some semi-verite-style scenes with villagers running down to the harbour to get a glimpse of the miracle worker arriving by boat, which all feels rather New Testament. The use of light and contrast is exceptionally good. The script is not astounding. Herta and Dorothea made a very important stipulation when they appeared in this movie. They wanted to be paid a wage and they wanted it up front. Why? Well, because they'd learnt a very hard lesson about collective filmmaking with Mädchen in uniform. In the previous episode, I pointed out that Mädchen was made on a modest budget of 55,000 Reichsmarks, with the cast and crew passing up a full wage in return for any profits that the film went on to make. They also invested their own money in the project. As I said, this was not unusual procedure, though noteworthy in such a successful feature. These pictures were being made by small independent studios and would never have happened without this communal investment. In fact, the final cost of making Mädchen was far less than the original estimated budget of 220,000 marks. 
Herter recalled that while her daily wage would have been 100 marks, she was in fact paid 25. All told, she was paid 3,200 marks at the end of shooting. Now, the film was said to have brought in a whopping 6 million marks by the end of 1934. None of the women who worked on the film, including the director or writer, got anything like a fair share of this amazing profit. They were told that the film's Jewish distributor had run off with the money. In fact, Herta knew this was not the case, having come across the man a few years later and discovered that they were as penniless as each other. Karl Froelich, of course, is thought to have done very well out of it, as did other co-producers and senior colleagues. Leontine Zagen, the director, accepted at the beginning that because none of the women were considered prominent in the film world, they would have to take a small percentage of the profits. But she was just as shocked as Herta by how little they made out of such a huge international success. She estimated that she made about 5,000 Reichmarks out of the picture and blamed the Nazis for taking the percentages that were her due. The bulk of the profits, she said, went to Froelich. What's more... Travelling in New York a few years later, she came across a poster outside a cinema announcing Karl Fröhlich's Mädchen in Uniform. Mädchen was so enormously popular worldwide and ran for so long that this six million is probably the tip of the iceberg. While one of the claims to the fame of this movie is that it was made on a shoestring budget and as a collective, the sad truth is that the people who made it a success got zero financial benefit from it. So, what became of our two lead actresses? The feisty, uncompromising Hertha Thieler, who played the heroine Manuela, and the striking, poised Dorothea Wieck, who played her beloved Fräulein von Bernborg. Dorothea, as you'd expect, was in sudden demand, not just in Germany, but abroad. At home, she appeared in some high-profile movies, including The Student of Prague, opposite Anton Walbrook, and then Hollywood called. Of course it did. She'd been in a worldwide hit and was young and beautiful. She answered the call and signed to Paramount, for whom she starred in two movies in 1933. The first, Cradle Song, failed to make much of an impact. The second, Miss Fane's Baby is Stolen, a comedy drama about the kidnap of a film star's child, certainly impressed the critics. I've seen it and she's wonderful, effervescent and charming and, of course, very glamorous. And yet, you can almost sense her discomfort in the role. Her accent is very strong, and she seems to make up for it with a jittery physicality. A bit like Anna and Elizabeth, she gives her all, throws herself into it, almost as though she needs to convince herself as much as us. The American audiences didn't warm to her, and Hollywood wasn't going to give anyone a second chance if she wasn't a potential gold mine. A German accent was not necessarily a drawback, as Marlena Dietrich and Hedy Lamarr could testify, but all the same, it didn't work out for Dorothea. Perhaps she didn't want it to. Perhaps she couldn't see herself as a Hollywood star and wanted to go home. One of my abiding images of Dorothea is one that I came across by chance and knocked me for six. I was in Berlin and had visited the Film Museum. It's a fantastic place, and part of it a shrine to Germany's biggest cinematic export, Marlena Dietrich. Strolling past a glass case, I did a double take beside a small photograph of Marlena. She's sitting at a restaurant table, 
possibly a studio canteen, and she's staring straight at the camera in full look-at-me get-up of masculine suit and tie, black beret and dark glasses, her trademark wisp-thin eyebrows just visible over the shades. Sitting beside her is a young woman dressed demurely in a blouse and woolen sweater and felt hat, stirring a large cup of coffee. Anyone comes across as mousy beside Marlena, but this young woman looks laughably unstarry and extremely awkward. And then suddenly it hit me. This is Dorothea. She's been photographed sitting beside her fellow countrywoman for a publicity shot, along the lines of, here come the Germans. Poor Dorothea looks so unhappy and uncomfortable, not keen on playing the publicity game at all. While her acting career didn't suffer, she made films into the 1960s, her Hollywood experiment was short-lived and perhaps humiliating for that reason. She certainly made more films than her Machen co-star Hertha Thiele, but then Hertha could be said to have chosen some more interesting vehicles. And what's more, Hertha was more prepared to rock the boat and do things her way. Apart from Machen in uniform, Hertha is now best remembered for her role in the left-wing classic Kula Vampa. The film was dreamt up and written by Bertolt Brecht and directed by the Bulgarian Slatan Dudov. It's a socialist document with a poor family at its centre. Herta plays Annie, the daughter, who is buffeted from one crisis to the next. The family ends up homeless and living in a camp not unlike a real one called Kula Vampa that existed just outside Berlin at the time. The name roughly translates as Empty Stomach. Controversial from the start, the film was banned because it showed the 1932 Weimar government in a bad light and had to be cut before it was allowed out again. Hertha got the part while she was still filming Märchen. She recalled in a much later interview that Brecht and Dudov were going about looking for a young and unknown actress and that the editor of Märchen had sneakily shown them a few of the film's rushes featuring Hertha. In September 1931, so just a couple of months before Märchen came out, Hertha was called for a meeting by a film company called Prometheus and was offered three movies, one of them being Kula Vampa. She had heard of Brecht at that point, but she was not politically active. Appearing in the film, being exposed to ideological debate, created in her a new passion for socialism. It also gave her a new haircut, which may seem a frivolous point to make, but in fact, her short hair is significant. It was Brecht who insisted on it. He wanted it short and with a very low parting at one side. She said the change of style was unnerving at first, but she grew to love it. To use her words, she felt comfortable, free and, not unlike Krista in trousers, transformed. What's more, she never changed it. Even as an elderly lady, she wore her hair in exactly the same style, telling people that Brecht had wanted it cut that way and that's the way it would stay. Hertha was married briefly in this period to the German actor Heinz Klingenberg. They appeared together in two movies in 1932 and then a year later, just as Adolf Hitler was coming to power, Klingenberg played the lead in a film called S.R. Mann Brandt, which roughly translates as Brandt the Stormtrooper. It portrays the path chosen by an ordinary bloke in joining the Sturmabteilung in a bid to stamp out the threat of communists. I can't imagine Hertha was too pleased with this choice, and I don't know how long after that they remained together, but her husband's association with propaganda must have rankled. Hertha also found her way back into a boarding school story, playing the lead in the 1933 film called Elizabeth und der Narr, or Elizabeth and the Jester. 
I wonder how keen she was to reprise the role of a schoolgirl. The fact that it was directed by the very successful and well-known Metropolis screenwriter Thea von Harbu may have spurred her on. For us, this film is most notable for the fact that it was her last in Germany for a very long time. Hertha was about to make the decision that confronted so many of her fellow film workers. Play your part in a new era of Nazi-controlled filmmaking or don't work at all. Hertha was asked by the newly appointed propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels to come on board and help make films glorifying the Third Reich. She gave him short shrift. I don't just blow with the wind and change my political allegiances like that, she told him. Karl Froehlich, the movie veteran who had produced Mädchen in Uniform, was making the opposite decision. For him, throwing his lot in with the Nazis meant he could carry on doing what he loved, making good, well-received movies and doing it unmolested by the authorities. In fact, he became part of the authorities, eventually in charge of the country's film association, the Reichsfilmkammer. Herder came to believe that Froehlich was instrumental in getting her thrown out of the German film scene, though oddly never held it against him. Such was her fondness for him from the Märchen days. But she couldn't stay. Without official endorsement, it was almost impossible for an actor to get any meaningful work. In 1937, Herta Thiele, who only a few years earlier had run from adoring fans and seen her face on the cover of magazines, left Germany for Switzerland with no idea what would become of her career. But she was not the only one of the Mädchen women to leave Germany. In fact, there was quite an exodus among them. And in the next episode, we'll find out how Leontine, the director, fared in this post-Mädchen world, and why she soon realised that she could never go back to the place of her biggest success. The Kiss was written and presented by Bibi Berkey. It was directed by Mark Lingwood. Studio production was by Francis Nutbeam Webber and original music composed by Timothy Bond. It was brought to you by Tempest Productions. Tempest Productions.